Welcome to Voices of the Valley, a series interviewing growers, entrepreneurs, educators, and technologists who are inventing new solutions for today's and tomorrow's challenges on the farm. Brought to you today by the Western Growers Association, supporting growers that grow the best medicine in the world. Find out more at WGA.com. Now here's your Voices of the Valley host, Director of Western Growers Center for Innovation and Technology, Dennis Donahue. Good morning and welcome to another episode of Voices of the Valley. And uh, I'm joined by my uh, good friend, Candace Wilson. Candace, good morning. Good morning, Dennis. Good to see you again. And uh, we have a, a terrific guest uh, this morning, uh, Josette Lewis, who's the Chief Scientific Officer of the Almond Board of California. I think I got that right. And, uh, and we want to talk to uh, Josette because the Almond Board has always got a, a lot of things going on. But Josette, good morning and great to see you. Thanks, Dennis. It's great to be here. Well, and let's start right there with your job. Talk to folks about what you do. You know, the Almond Board is uh, obviously a well-respected, well-regarded and very active and busy group. You've got a lot going on. So if you're uh, Ahead, if you've got the reins on the chief science role, you must be busy. So talk about what you do. Thanks. Yeah. Well, in, uh, to put in short, I lead the research program for the almond industry, and that spans production research, so growing of almonds, but also a few things that uh, go well beyond that. So we have initiated a program to look at adding value to almond co-products or biomass that comes out of almond production. The kernel that we eat is only about a third of the biomass that comes out of an almond orchard every year. We have hulls, which is a kind of fleshy outer coating, kind of like the part of the peach that we eat, a little drier in almonds, but still pretty sweet. And then the shells as well. And then there's some woody biomass. Sometimes uh, early in an orchard, there's prunings. And then at the end of the life of an orchard, you have a lot of woody biomass. So we're also looking at ways to add value to that, both as a zero waste strategy and as a way to add value to the industry. And then we also have a very important nutrition research program that is critical to achieving our vision of making life better by what we grow and how we grow. That's our vision for the almond industry. So part of making life better is producing a really nutritious as well as delicious product. And then obviously the how we grow gets into the production research. So Everything production, biomass, nutrition falls in the scope of what we do. And I'm very fortunate to work with a great team of people trained in a diversity of sciences to help oversee our research program. And that's my job. It's an exciting job to have. Well, and, you, and we've talked a little bit about, uh, you know, that uh, California almond production is exceeds a million acres yet on a by comparison basis. Uh, when we hang out with the Midwest, you know, it's not uh, as big on, on a scale basis, but from a global production standpoint, California rules the roost, doesn't it? Indeed, we do. We grow almost 80% of the world's almonds. And that's really a reflection of the unique environment that we have as a Mediterranean climate here in California. Almonds really only grow in Mediterranean climates, so hot, dry summers and cold, wet winters. And there's only a limited number of those around the world. And the Central Valley of California is by far and above the largest Mediterranean climate. So it is uniquely well-suited to grow this crop. It's part of why we are the number one crop acreage now in California is that it's a relatively high value crop for many growers. 
it also means California has some limited competition in the world. So we're not competing with every country. We're not competing with China because we have a unique opportunity to grow almonds here that, you know, Australia has a little bit of Mediterranean climate, uh, obviously Spain, a little bit in Portugal, and then very, very small amounts in places like Italy and the Middle East. But we really do have a comparative advantage from a marketing perspective here in California because of our unique climate. Josette, while California does have that unique climate, we also know there are many struggles in California right now. If you are in agriculture, it's not easy to be a grower. Can you talk a little bit about what are the main priorities that the board is working on right now? Well, I'll maybe start with sort of the production side of things. You know, we try to to look at the role of research and innovation as a continuum that helps our industry stay profitable and productive today, as well as thrive and even really transform into the future. So we try to take a short, medium, and long-term view on the role of research and innovation. So I'd say today, there's obviously some major pain points around water. I think everyone who works in agriculture in California feels that pain. Pest management continues to be a challenge. Millions of people around the world enjoy eating almonds, and so do lots of pests and diseases enjoy almonds. So we're in constant battle to produce a healthy and delicious crop without too much damage to it or the trees that produce it. So those are two really big ones. You know, I think increasingly as we look at the future of agriculture, we're also really trying to harness the ecology and biology of the system. Some folks would say this is a little bit of returning to farming in the past, but it's also really taking advantage of modern science to help us understand, for example, how to manage our soils so that we can take advantage of the organic matter in our soils, taking advantage of good microorganisms that exist in the soil that help combat disease and help cycle nutrients more efficiently. Lots of people hear a lot about the gut microbiome and the importance that plays in human health. In many ways, you can kind of think of the soil that way for agriculture. And we also really increasingly look at the how we grow as integral to how we market almonds. You know, we all know that consumers are thinking more about where their food comes from and how it was produced. Obviously, a pain point if you're in agriculture here in California is that we have a very high regulatory system for many, particularly environmental, as well as concerns of ag labor and health of communities around agriculture. So we have to farm to a very high standard, and that can be hard and it can be more expensive at times. But increasingly, that's also part of our advantage in marketing the quality of California agriculture and the quality of what we produce. It's really produced to those high standards. And so we start thinking about things like how much carbon we can sequester in an almond orchard, how much habitat we can provide to biodiversity. So those are some of the things that we think about as sometimes being able to solve the pain point, but also to ensure that we have really high value markets and continue to grow the market around the world for almonds. You are so right. California doesn't make it easy to be a grower sometimes, but also it does provide a really great opportunity to share the great messages and the progress that the growers are focusing on or they've been able to implement. As you think on your the research that you guys have done and some of the recent accomplishments, are there any great wins or highlights on the technology front or you know, just great sustainability messages that you guys have been able to confirm? Yeah, maybe a couple that I could highlight. So kind of going back to pest management, the most damaging insect pest of almonds is navel orange worm. 
And it's a problem because it damages the nuts themselves. So you don't get the quality standards in these damaged nuts. But it also can become an entry point for aflatoxin. And aflatoxin standards for safety are very stringent around the world. And as a product like almonds that is very highly globally traded, you know, we really need to make sure we're producing quality and safety to the highest standards in order to retain our markets. So with this pest, which the Almond Board has been doing research on for more than 40 years, and that research has delivered to us a number of really good integrated pest management tools that are hopefully standard practice in the industry or that we continue to promote as good management practices in the orchard. And one of those, the research that we funded has now resulted in commercial products is something called mating disruption. So it's in a way, in an orchard, you can emit pheromones from the female navel orangeworm. And it's like navel orangeworm perfume, and it confuses the males. They think they're going towards females when, in fact, it's just the pheromone puffed out into the orchard. And that confuses them. They can't find the females, and they mate less. And that's kind of a form of birth control in a way. So that is one that is really valuable from a couple of standpoints. One is that it really improves the control of this pest very dramatically. And because you have high levels of control with a non-chemical pesticide, this is a biological product, it allows the grower to hopefully achieve the highest quality standards when they sell their almonds to the processors. It also helps us reduce pesticide use, which has lots of advantages to the grower, but also to our sustainability and our commitment to growing almonds sustainably. So that's an example of something that we continue to see adoption of in the industry, but is still on its upward adoption curve. Another one that I'd highlight is something called whole orchard recycling. This is a practice that was developed by cooperative extension specialists. I'll really give a shout out to Brett Holt, who is a cooperative extension specialist, a farm advisor in Stanislaus County, and it involves how to treat the woody biomass when an orchard is at the end of its life. So after about 20 to 25 years, almond trees are no longer as productive. You know, historically, those almond orchards would have been burned. They would have plowed down the, pushed down the orchard trees and burned those. But for air quality reasons, we can no longer do that. This whole orchard recycling, the trees are taken down. They are chipped with some very large equipment. And then that massive quantity of almond chips are then deep ripped into the soil and put low into this, not spread on the top like compost. And as a result of that practice, we can sequester very significant amounts of carbon deep in the soil profile and contribute to mitigating climate change. And it's truly one of these win-win stories because not only does it have those environmental benefits, but it also improves the water holding capacity. I think it improves water use efficiency by 19 or 20%, and it also increases yield. So it's a real win for the grower and a win for the environment. And those are two practices that we're starting to see rapid adoption of in the industry today. Talk a little bit about also, uh, you mentioned sustainability, and, and then one of the things uh, I'm sure... Uh, the Almond Board is leading the charge as this uh, collaborative network around the uh, California Pollination Coalition. That seems to me to be a, a pretty important initiative. Yeah, no, thanks for asking about that. You said at the start of our conversation, you know, almonds have a natural partnership with bees. What people might not recognize is that almonds evolutionarily cannot pollinate themselves. Almonds have to be pollinated by a variety that is not too closely related. If you think about it from an evolutionary standpoint, it was a way of kind of making sure almonds don't marry their cousins. 
in the same way that we have legal reasons that we shouldn't marry our cousins. <laughs> okay, so, so there's some natural laws. Okay, natural law. Okay, there you go. Exactly. That's a it's conversation. a little about, Yeah, future podcast. Exactly. Mother nature at work there. So if you go buy an almond orchard, most almond orchards today actually have two different varieties growing in them. Sometimes you can actually really tell the architecture could be different enough that you can actually tell there's two different kinds of trees in there. And we need bees, particularly honeybees, to carry pollen from one variety of almonds across the row to the next variety. So this is a partnership, I always say, that was designed by nature. And as a result, almond growers are very much in partnership with beekeepers to grow a good crop. So the average cost an almond grower pays for renting a strong hive is about $400 per acre in order to get pollination services every spring. The almond industry here in California utilizes the vast majority of the commercial beekeeping hives in this country, anywhere from 60 to 80 percent, I've seen numbers of commercial hives come to California for almond pollination. So we have a substantial need for good honeybee industries, as well as we have a responsibility to those bees to keep them safe and healthy when they're in our orchards. It makes sense for the growers so that we can keep prices constrained. We saw a very, very rapid rise in the cost of pollination services during the time when almond acreage was expanding rapidly here in California in the early 2000s. You know, it used to be maybe you'd pay $50 per acre for pollination services less than 20 years ago, and now we're up above $400 per acre. So it makes good sense for the growers to keep those bees safe, because if they don't, then we're going to continue to see those costs rise. But also because, unfortunately, almonds get, uh, I would say, unfairly accused in the popular press for being responsible for a lot of the problems that the nation's honeybee population is experiencing. The honeybees have a number of challenges, ranging from whether or not beekeepers are using good practices to varroa mites, which was a pest that was introduced into the United States from Asia and feeds on honeybee larvae and caused very rapid declines in honeybee health about the time when almonds was expanding rapidly. That's another part of our problem. So varroa mite is a huge problem in the threat to honeybee health. And then inbreeding among the queen breeders of bee genetics in the same way that I described how almonds evolved to require outcrossing as a strategy to avoid the kinds of diseases that can accumulate when you have inbreeding. The beekeeping industry relies on a fairly narrow genetics. And so the inbreeding of honeybees is also potentially contributing to their decline. So we take very seriously our responsibility as well as our own self-interest in having a healthy honeybee population in the United States. So we fund a lot of research and we have a lot of partnerships related to honeybees. One of the signature things that the Almond Board did about 15 years ago was develop some best management practices for almond growers to ensure that we're keeping those honeybees as safe as possible while they're in almond orchards for the six to eight weeks a year that they're there. And we promote adoption of those every year. We also work on honeybee health more broadly to try to partner with organizations that work nationally so that when those hives leave almonds, they also go to places where they can have a good environment and get the kinds of nutrition they need, as well as good management of those hives. 
Where I would say the pollinator coalition comes in is that because almond growers are very attuned to the importance of pollination, we have an opportunity to go beyond serving just honeybees and also provide safe and quality forage and habitat for native bees and for other pollinators. And that is what drove us to be a founding partner along with a nonprofit called Pollinator Partnership and the California Department of Food and Agriculture to create the California Pollinator Coalition. And that's really a unique coalition where it was started by agriculture. We have the majority of the agricultural acres in California represented by different organizations, kind of our sister organizations from Western Growers, of course. It's great to have you guys with us in that, to the wine grape industries, alfalfa and forage, cattlemen, citrus. I'm going to feel bad because I'm probably going to leave a few of my yeah, you have 18 to think about by accident. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, but, <laughs> but that, that may be a tough one to round off. Yeah. So it's the effort is really, it's a voluntary effort to try to help agriculture kind of think about how we can not only produce profitably and safe and healthy products for the consumer, but also to be essential parts of the ecosystem. Well, you know, it seems like here in California. Yeah. Well, what, what I was going to say was, and this kind of inspired uh, our uh, collaborating with the Silicon Valley mm-hmm. Forum on this flight of the honeybees that where we were seeing the intersection of, you know, with the almond industry was there was just a lot of quote unquote bee tech, you know? And uh, so obviously you would see that, but I wanted to ask you from a technology and innovation standpoint, you know, if I put on my Salinas Valley hat, we're thinking about food safety, we're thinking about automation and labor and then data, you know, which is kind of a catch-all phrase, but, you know, essentially precision ag, big data from an almond board perspective, or just from your industry, where do you see, uh, technology uh, mm-hmm. and, and innovation being the biggest opportunity and, you know, what are the pain points? You know, for instance, we're thinking about field harvest automation, but, you know, that's not necessarily an issue in your neck of the woods, but there may be other areas in terms of automation. So w- what are you thinking about in terms of technology? And I appreciated the comment you made before we got on the air that, you know, a lot of times folks just have technology and they, they didn't have the almond industry in mind, which is ironic given the size of the footprint of, uh, of almonds <laughs> right, in right. production agriculture in California. So what are you thinking about in terms of technology? Yeah, well, maybe I'll start with harvest. You know, one thing that really is a plus for maybe why we see as many crop acres in almonds here in California, besides the unique environment we have, is that it's not a very labor-intensive crop, certainly compared to the fresh fruits and vegetable industries that you're very familiar with. But one place where we're starting to see the beginnings of what I would consider a transformative shift is the way we harvest almonds. So go back 100 years, people had poles and put down a tarp and just hit the almond trees to get them off. And then (laughs) fortunately, now we have some equipment that shakes the tree, literally grabs the trunk, shakes it, and the almonds fall to the ground. They dry for a few days right under the almond tree. And then they have other equipment that comes in and slows and sweeps those almonds into a neat row in between the two lines of the trees where they dry further. And then we come back and pick up those with another piece of equipment. So there's three pieces of equipment that are required to harvest almonds. And that is probably one of the most labor intensive parts of growing almonds. You know, the advantage is we can use Mother Nature and the sun to dry the almonds. They're not done mechanically and we don't need to use energy for that. The downside is those almonds are sitting on the ground and we can't irrigate the trees while they're underneath and drying because that would introduce opportunities for mold and other diseases on the nuts. So 
the trees are getting kind of stressed out when harvest time. We use something called regulated deficit irrigation, which is a way to sort of stress the trees so the nuts dry out more quickly and uniformly for harvest. So the trees go into the harvest slightly stressed, and then you have to leave them stressed while those nuts are drying because you can't turn the irrigation back on. What we've started to see in the last couple of years is both companies from within California, but perhaps more leading with companies from outside the state, from Spain and Israel, who've developed equipment that allow for off-ground harvesting is what we would say. So rather than shaking them and letting them hit the ground and then dry there, there's a frame or some way to catch the almonds as you knock them off the tree and then put them directly into a windrow where they can dry away from the trees and you can allow the irrigation to go back on. You don't have the sweeping step, so we're eliminating a fair amount of labor there. So it's just shake and pick up. So we've taken a huge amount of equipment and labor out of that situation. And early indications are that that will have economic advantages to the grower. It will potentially also have some quality implications to the grower because we're not sweeping the nuts across the dirty orchard floor and potentially picking up ants and other things that might be on there. So that's a very near-term innovation. You know, it's costly to buy new equipment, so we'll see how that plays out over time. But I think the labor savings and the fewer pieces of equipment that growers are required to maintain um, So that's one really interesting one. I think kind of really thinking more broadly about innovation, the two areas where we're very excited, and I know we've shared these in common, Dennis, because we've talked about it, is around precision irrigation and nutrient management. So this is where rather than distributing water at the same rate across maybe a 10 or more acre orchard, you can fine tune the amount of water to smaller, if not each tree individually, each set of trees, smaller number of trees, to reflect the variability in the soils across an orchard. Nature isn't uniform, so the soils definitely differ. You know, you might have slight differences in other environmental conditions across an orchard that drive those trees to need different amounts of water and nutrients. And that precision will not only help us hopefully with our return on investment for the grower to put only as much water and fertilizer as needed when it's needed. So there's a input savings there and also a energy savings if you think about the amount of energy that's embedded in irrigation. But from a sustainability standpoint, it also allows us to improve the water use efficiency, which is something that we're always looking to advance because of the high cost and the limited amount that we all know we have. And on things like fertilizer management, you know, again, we operate in a highly regulated environment. So growers have to comply with things like the irrigated lands regulatory program. So I guess I should say, you know, maybe different from some other crops, most almond orchards now are on high efficiency drip and micro sprinkler irrigation. So a lot of fertilizer is done through fertigation, it's put in the water itself. So being highly precise about the delivery of water and nutrients can also help growers meet their regulatory requirements more easily. So that's one area we are very excited. And the other one, is more around technology for pest management. So looking at this whole booming arena of biological control products, they may be biopesticides, or even looking at something like sterile insect technology for that navel orange worm that is such a huge cost to our industry. But also things like pest monitoring to have automated trapping systems in orchards that can reduce the amount of labor spent on monitoring 
pest populations and encouraging threshold-based pest management decisions. So rather than going in and applying pest control product because it's May and typically that's when we see a certain pest come out, if you have a good monitoring system, you only apply it when that pest reaches a threshold that could cause significant damage. So that's both an economic savings to a grower because you're paying somebody to go in there and you have products that they're applying, but also because it can help our sustainability. And anything that can automate that is also really exciting. So that's maybe two areas, kind of water, water, water. It's always one. And then pest, pest, pest. Yeah. Uh, but a couple examples there. Josette, I have a question. I've spent most of my career working in genetics. And so the advancement of genetics, and I know the permanent crops take a long time to bring anything new and exciting, but can you talk a little bit about the evolution of genetics and if there's anything yeah. exciting on the way? Well, that is probably the topic that I hold closest to my heart because I have a degree in genetics and a PhD in molecular biology. I <laughs> love that topic. Um, so I would say one of the biggest innovations in our industry, which we are already rapidly adopting, is the development of self-compatible almond varieties. So these are almonds that can marry their cousins. <laughs> uh, they can marry themselves in a way. And the way that we got that is through breeding with naturally occurring self-compatible varieties. So there was an almond tree discovered in Europe that happened to be able to pollinate itself or pollinate another tree of the same type. And that has been used by some commercial breeding programs and by USDA in breeding almonds. USDA just released a new variety this year that's their first self-compatible almond variety. And then we support a public breeding program at UC Davis that is using additional sources of self-compatibility coming from peaches. Peaches are very closely related to almonds. And so that is hopefully going to bring additional sources of self-compatibility. The advantage of self-compatible almond variety is multiple. I think very quickly people think it's all about bees. Yes, there's probably savings on the number of bees you need in an orchard. If a bee is no longer required to go across the rows to pollinate, it can just fly within a single tree and do the job. You don't need as many of them. Bees, like any organism, would generally like to stay local if they can. So if you can get the job done with a self-compatible variety, you don't need as many bees. But it also means you're really just farming one variety. Because right now, farmers are farming two in their orchard. Some crazy people farm three in a single orchard. And that means they bloom at slightly different times. They have to overlap on the bloom. But they also can harvest at very different times, like months apart. And that means you have to go in the orchard twice to harvest. That's twice the labor. And, you know, even how you manage it throughout the year. So self-compatible almond variety is a huge traditional breeding approach using natural variation that we are supporting through public breeding programs, as well as helping evaluate commercial varieties coming through and that with those traits. We are also looking at the potential use of gene editing which is a very modern technique for making very targeted changes in the existing genome of almonds. We would only look at it in the context of rootstocks, not in the part of the almond tree or the scion that produces the kernel. So again, a little bit of uh, basic agronomy is most orchard crops, almonds included, have a root stock that is different 
then the top part and they are grafted together. So the rootstocks, if we did gene editing of rootstocks for disease resistance, for example, or salinity tolerance, those would be important traits that would allow us to manage pests that occur in the soil, for example, that would not affect the kernel at all. So the almond itself would not be gene edited. And we have to be really smart about that because, again, almonds are a very globally traded product. And so while here in the United States, a gene edited product is not necessarily considered a GMO, in many of our export markets, it would be. So in Europe, for example, if we did gene edited almonds, those would be GMO almonds, and that would be potentially damaging to our marketing program. The last place where we are working is not on the almond itself, but actually considering a GMO insect that could be used to help control navel orange worms. So this is a company out of the UK that has developed a genetic engineering approach to what has traditionally been called sterile insect technology. So some of your growers might be aware, we've used sterile insects in California, particularly in the vegetable industry to control damaging fruit flies. We've used them in cotton for bollworm. Those sterile insects are produced by irradiating them with nuclear materials to make them sterile. And this company has a genetic engineering approach to that. So among the different technologies that we're considering for sterile insect technology applied to navel orange worm is a GMO insect, but I haven't pulled the trigger on that yet. So that's a lot of discussion yet to have in the industry. That's all very exciting. Has anybody looked at, is there something that we can do more systemically within the almond from a genetics perspective so that the insect, so it kind of has a natural immunity of some sort? So you can breed for disease resistance. Obviously, that's a big part of the vegetable industry is sort of breeding for disease resistance. It's a little bit more difficult to breed for insect uh, damage. There are some strategies for that, not so much on almonds. The challenge with almonds compared to a lot of other crops particularly annual crops, is the tree is around for a very long time, 25 years in many cases. Mm -hmm. And so it's very difficult to change the tree enough that it will be able to fight off, say, an insect pest for the entire life of that tree. Where we've had more success is breeding for things like disease resistance, particularly in rootstocks. So there are commercial rootstocks that, for example, have greater resistance to nematodes in the soil. And those are really important in parts like the San Joaquin Valley, where nematodes are a much bigger problem. You can also breed rootstocks to be more resistant to other soil problems. Again, salt tolerance, boron is a huge problem in certain parts of the state where it naturally occurs. So rootstocks, you can breed for that. The top part of the tree, the scion, honestly, the breeding has mostly focused on the quality. The nut that reigns supreme, the genetics, is well over 100 years old. So the non-Torel almond, which is the predominant one that most people eat if you eat a handful of almonds, it's well over 100 years old. And it was a tree someone found in an orchard that looked really good. It has a pretty good-sized nut, long kernel, and certain color characteristics and flavor characteristics that make it, the, as its name implies, the best of the best. The most breeding efforts are really now focused on self-compatibility more than pest or disease resistance, with the exception of the roots. Dennis, can I ask one more question before we wrap up? Yeah. I'm just also so curious from a genetics perspective, you know, now we have almond butter, we have almond milk, there's all the things. Is there also, from a genetics perspective, this opportunity to further kind of segment and have a specific genetics that fill a certain niche of the market? Or will it always be one size fits all, you know? 
Yeah, so it's not one size fit all now. I mean, there's probably a dozen varieties of almonds that are grown commercially. You know, as it's mentioned, nonpareil is sort of the premier, and the majority of acreage still has half nonpareil and half of something else, the pollinizer variety. And some of those pollinators are very specific for specific uses. So, for example, there's a few varieties that are small in size. And those are preferred in the confectionery industry. So the chocolate industry likes a smaller almond so that you could have a whole almond, say, in a chocolate bar or in a Hershey's Kiss that has a tiny almond in it. Some of the almond varieties are particularly good at roasting. So there are certain varieties that have a premium there. So there is some differentiation that exists today. And I think that's one of the real strengths of the California industry is that we have a variety of high quality almond varieties that can serve different market niches. Hopefully the industry, as we move towards self-compatible varieties, will continue to retain that diversity. Because one of the risks as the economic value of a self-compatible variety to the grower is so high and the management ease that growers could end up very rapidly adopting varieties that maybe aren't as high quality and don't have the diversity of characteristics of our current industry. And that would potentially have some trade-offs for the value at the processing and marketing side of almonds. And that's sort of the role of public breeding is to try to do the stuff that's maybe longer term and a little riskier that a private breeder or nursery wouldn't necessarily do. And by supporting public breeding, we hope that we will continue to keep California almonds to have the premier quality, but also that diversity of qualities that exist today. Candace, I would say Josette just put her molecular biology PhD to pretty, <laughs> pretty good use there, didn't she? She did. Isn't it fascinating? I love this. And we always forget about the genetics, you know, but the role that genetics really Mm -hmm. can play from really to bring value to the whole chain. So I like to have that conversation. Well, no, we're glad you did. It was, it was a good one. And it was interesting to kind of understand the nuances of uh, the different varieties of almonds. And uh, I'm certainly always going to cheer that the chocolate bar uh, category grows with uh, with almonds <laughs> in it. Though. The, nothing personal against the almond industry. I probably shouldn't. Let's just scratch the surface a little bit on one final topic before we wrap up. We were chatting a little bit before we got on the air uh, about data. And, and you're obviously generating a lot of information in terms of research and, you know, just listening to the entire conversation. There is a lot of data floating around. You know, in our neck of the woods, I still remember well one particular particular grower, you know, if you're in the ag ops side, you're managing dashboards. And I just remember one grower going, you know, I thought technology was supposed to make my life easier. If someone gives me one more dashboard to manage, you know, could somebody please get me out of Excel hell? So so there's obviously a lot of data running around uh, and you're being a permanent crop with everything going on. How's your industry looking at data and you're getting bombarded with technology? You know, we can pick it up with you know, in the beginning of ag tech, you know, everyone thought drones were the product. Drones are not the product. It's right, either a service right, or it's right. analytics or it's satellite right. and imagery. How are you looking at all of that? Is is it an industry or is every is everybody on their own? Yeah, no, that's a really important question and one that we're really engaging with our advisory committees last year and this year in particular, as we think about what is the role of the Almond Board in helping accelerate adoption of best practice, which could include best technology. We want to do that in a way that helps, again, meet that vision of making life better by what we grow and how we grow. And technology is a big part of that, but also do it in a way that doesn't have us picking winners and playing an inappropriate role 
in getting involved in a competitive landscape. So I think we're, we're thinking about it in kind of three areas where we can help accelerate technological innovation and adoption in the industry. One of the really basic ones is to help validate technologies for how they perform in almonds. You know, we've seen so much explosion of, again, biological technologies, as well as technological technologies. So sensing and decision support tools. You can put a sensor in the soil, you can put a sensor in the tree, you can put a sensor in the canopy, you can put a sensor in a drone, you can put a sensor in an airplane, you can put a sensor in a satellite that tells you something about the health of your orchard. That's a lot of sensors. So, you know, which of those actually work best? for telling you about how much stress or needs the tree has for water or nutrients, playing a role in validating those. We kind of think that almost as potentially being the consumer reports of technology. But then also, as you pointed out on the dashboard thing, how do you integrate it? Particularly with having now multiple options in that example I just gave you from the soil to the satellite, you know, how do you integrate some subset of those sensor and data systems to help you make a very practical decision of when to turn on the irrigation, how long to run it, and how much that differs across your orchard. So how do we promote more integration of technology so that it better suits the very practical, you know, and to be honest, those practical decisions involve labor considerations. You got to send somebody out there to go manage your irrigation system for example, it's not fully automated. You don't just press a button on your phone and something happens. So that integration becomes very important. And then lastly, and I know this is an area where we share with you, is how do we sometimes stimulate innovation to come to our industry to solve our problems? So there are some things that are different about almonds and perennial crops than row crops. We have certain pests and diseases that are different than some others, but we also have a lot of commonalities. You know, we talk a lot with industries that grow trees, so the other nut crops in particular, but even things like citrus, but you can extend it out to the vine crops. All all the perennial crops have some commonalities in things like irrigation and nutrient management and the hardware and the software that could support those. You and I have talked about this whole area of biological pesticides and technology in the pest management arena, which is generally speaking, not that unique to any one crop. It can be adapted and the analytics can take into consideration the specifics of that crop, but the basic enabling technology is often not that specific. So how can we maybe play a more catalytic role in some of these areas of validating, integrating, or stimulating? And then how can we work with other California specialty crop industries? Because while almonds is the biggest acreage in the state, as you and I have always talked about, we're not a drop in the bucket compared to the 80 million acres of corn and soybean in this country, let alone worldwide. So we want the best technology to come to almonds and we want growers to feel confident in adopting it when it does work. So it's a lot about marrying our trusted role, finding that pre-competitive space, bringing the vast amount of public research expertise we've developed. And we've got researchers across the University of California and Cal State systems who know extraordinary detailed information on how almonds grow and how do we get that information translated into this commercial innovation so that companies use that in their technologies and put it to commercial practice. So a lot of shifting of roles and changing sometimes the strategy of how we deliver support to the industry. Well, no, that's terrific. And Candace, I think Gosetta, certainly, I don't know what you think, but I sure understand why she's the chief scientific officer of the the Almond Board of California. You know, Josette, I was just thinking like, it's really so amazing that, I mean, your knowledge and expertise just kind of flows out of you. You 
the industry's well, in good so hands much. very clearly. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that. Well, I'm thrilled to be working for the California Almond Industry. I've had a long career in agriculture. I started out working internationally at USAID, working in Africa and Latin America and Asia and with small farmers on a whole host of crops that we don't grow in California. So worked on Midwest row crops. And it's just fantastic to work in my home state on a product that I firmly believe in and consume every day. And it's great to work with other colleagues in California agriculture, including the folks at Western Growers. So really pleased to have this opportunity. Great. Well, thanks for uh, joining us today. A, a terrific conversation. And, you know, we always enjoy uh, posting these, what end up being kind of combination radio and podcast. And uh, I think if anyone's looking for a, a quick hour uh, tutorial about the industry. I think you provided us with that. So thank you for that. And Candace, I think we did pretty good. And we'll look forward to uh, our next episode of uh, Voices of the Valley. And uh, Josette's raising the bar a little bit. That's right. Thank you so much, Josette. We appreciate your time. Thanks, well, thanks for the opportunity to be here with you today. Sounds good. All right. That's another episode of Voices of the Valley. And we will be back next week. Thanks for listening to the Voices of the Valley podcast, brought to you today by Western Growers Association, supporting producers that grow the best medicine in the world. Find out more at WGA.com.